and even nations require restraints that dissuade them from pursuing certain courses of action. We sometimes refer to those restraints as deterrence. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines deterrent in this way. A deterrent is something that serves to discourage, prevent, or inhibit certain patterns of behavior. Years ago, I, a family that I knew, that actually lived in Essex Fells, by the way, but they got this pet dog, and they owned a beautiful home on a very large plot of ground with a beautiful yard and all kinds of shrubbery and flowers. But they had two problems. The first was that their dog had a penchant for running away from home. The second was that they didn't want to put up a fence or a gate around their yard, fearing that it would only be an eyesore. So what could they do to deter their dog from bolting the property and running away? Well, here's what they did. They installed an invisible electrified fence. And I can tell you that it didn't take too many electric shocks before the dog was deterred from ever running off the property again. Deterrence. They can work. They can be effective. They can discourage, prevent, and inhibit offensive and violating and troublesome and problem behaviors. I remember when I was a student in grade school, probably about 10 years ago, that, that teachers would somehow, or sometimes, <coughs> show the picture of a lung that had been blackened and so damaged and compromised by cigarette smoking and from all the tar and nicotine. And when they were shown that poster of this darkened lung, the hope was that the picture would serve as a deterrent for the kids against taking up the potentially deadly habit of cigarette smoking. Do any, did any of you guys see that poster? Okay. <clears throat> well, sometimes the poster worked, right? Obviously and sadly, sometimes it didn't. Now, some of the kids, even though they may have been repelled and disgusted by the pictures at first glance, over time, they seemingly became comfortable with the prospect of taking up smoking to be cool or as a status symbol. So deterrents, unfortunately, don't always work. Deterrents are not always heeded or respected. They are by no means fail-safe. How about the death penalty, right? When a murderer is sentenced to death for intentional premeditated homicide, its immediate value, the death sentence, if you will, is that it sees justice rendered. An eye for an eye, if you will. It restores our faith in the justice system. In addition, it can help the family of the deceased, of the murdered victim, cope with their loss, right? And remove some of the sting of it. But beyond that, it should also serve as a deterrent to those who might contemplate acts of murder in the future. It puts on display what will happen to those who maliciously take human life. In an ideal justice system, those who take lives will forfeit and lose their own. 
Justice demands that their own lives be taken from them. And so one of the purposes and use of the death penalty is to serve as a deterrent against others committing murder. But unfortunately, we all know that murder continues unabated. Homicide persists. Deterrence. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. Now, I'm going to switch gears for a moment, but I will return to the theme and notion of deterrence. But a very troubling phenomenon and behavioral orientation in the world today is anti-Semitism. It has properly been called the world's oldest or longest standing hatred. And it is rearing its ugly head and increasing at an exponential rate in the world today. And I believe it is only going to get worse as we approach the end time. Revelation 12 says that Satan, knowing his time draws short, he will act with great wrath on the earth. And specifically, I believe he will persecute the Jewish people. There will be a time of great tribulation upon the earth, especially directed against the Jewish people. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah foresaw that day, and he referred to that time on earth as the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7. I believe that the Antichrist will implement his own version of the quote-unquote final solution to the Jewish problem, and he will seek to eradicate the Jewish people once and for all. And tragically, I believe that he will surpass what Hitler and the Nazis were able to accomplish in their time. His results will be deadlier than theirs. You see, I believe that Jewish people hold the key to Messiah's return and the second coming. You might remember that in Jesus last week, he told the Jewish leaders in Matthew chapter 23, he said, you will not see me again until what? You say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai in Israel, in its Hebraic background, or actually it's a Hebraism, and it connotes, it means welcome. It communicates welcome. So one of the cultural icons that we have here in the United States, you know how sometimes you visit people's homes and they might have a mat in front of their front door and it has the word welcome, right? So they're conveying their welcome to their guests, right? Well, Israel, you won't find welcome mats, but one thing that you will see on a lot of homes in Israel is this plaque on the door that says, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is the Hebraic way of expressing welcome to guests, welcome to people. So when Jesus said that to the Jewish leaders, what he was saying is that they will not see him again until they are ready to welcome him as the promised Jewish Messiah, right? When they look to me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as for an only son, then the floodgates of salvation will open for the Jewish people. 
Well, I believe that the devil believes that if he can destroy the Jewish people, he can prevent the second coming of Messiah Jesus. So it is not really surprising that we are seeing such an uptick in anti-Semitism all over the world these days. I believe that we are getting closer to the time of the end. I believe that the world is being prepared for that time. And so Satan is amping up his game. And I, you know, the level of anti-Semitism, and perhaps you've been following in the news, but the level of anti-Semitism that has been surfaced and exposed by the current war in Gaza has been nothing less to me than shocking. And for Jews, terrifying and unnerving. There have been protests all over the world, many even turning violent. To me, it is shocking that people would see a moral equivalence between Hamas, the terrorist organization in Gaza that murdered 1,400 people, including women, babies, and children, on the 7th of October, and they would see a moral equivalence between them and between Hamas, uh, between Israel, right? Israel's war is not against the Palestinian people. Israel's war is against Hamas, the terrorist organization that controls and dominates their own people, that uses their own people as human shields, right? That stores their weapons underneath hospitals and in churches and in children's schools. It is shocking to me that people would rip down posters of the 200-plus abducted hostages from various billboards around the world. Why would you oppose that? If you have any human dignity and you value life, why would you rip down a poster of people that were taken into captivity? So what does all that have to do with deterrence this morning? Why did I begin our time and discussion by talking about deterrence? Well, because the portion of Scripture that we will consider this morning actually contains what I believe to be a deterrent to anti-Semitism. God has put the world and the nations of the world and individuals in the world on notice. Anti-Semitism will not ultimately succeed. Philo-Semitism, by contrast, or the love of the Jewish people, on the other hand, will actually be rewarded and blessed. And so I would ask that you would turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3. And the title of my sermon this morning is God's Foreign Policy, the Deterrent to Anti-Semitism. God's Foreign Policy, the Deterrent to Anti-Semitism. So would you turn to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, and allow me to read that for you. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know, I have preached on that text over the years many different times 
on my, uh, in my congregation uh, up the road in Livingston. And in the past, I have concentrated mostly on the first two verses in this text, which outlines or actually lays out for us the call of Abraham. And as I have noted and observed in, these, in this passage, God's call on Abraham actually involved three things. One, what he was called from. Secondly, what he was called to. And thirdly, why he was called, or the purpose for his call. First, he was called from his land, he was called from his birthplace, and he was called from his father's house. Basically, he was called from his comfort zone, from his whole former and manner way of life, from everything that he was familiar and comfortable with. Second, he was called to a land that God would show him. And if you think about it, he didn't really have a whole lot of information to go on. Okay? I can tell you, my wife, when, we, when we're about to go on a holiday or a vacation or on a trip, she'll go to the local library and she'll take out books, Voter's Guide to This, or you know, all, these different, you know, all these different travel guides, right? Because she wants to get to know the lay of the land in advance so that we can go and visit the things that are important, the things that we're interested in. But God didn't give Abraham a whole lot of information. He said, go to a land which I will show you. Wasn't a whole lot, right? He was on a need-to-know basis. God will, would reveal a little bit at a time. And God is often like that, isn't he? Even with us, right? So if Abraham was called from his comfort zone, he was called to anything but what was familiar to him and comfortable for him. No huge description. Only go to the land that I will show you. And finally, thirdly, God reveals the purpose for Abraham's call to bring blessing to the entire world. And trust me, the world was in great need of blessing, not just then, but in fact even today, right? The world had been undone by the curse and had been plunged into futility by the sin of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. God's plan to reverse the curse and restore blessing to the world had to start somewhere. And that somewhere was with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That was just the start, by the way, in case you're wondering where is the blessing that God promised. That was just the start of it. It is a work still in progress. God's plan to restore blessing to his original creation is still in process, and it will not be brought to completion until the day of Messiah Jesus, until the new heavens and the new earth. Today, however, I'm going to take a different angle on this passage. I'm actually going to concentrate on verse 3 in our text. And that's really the amazing thing about God's Word, isn't it? You can actually look at the same passage, and you can squeeze several different sermons or teachings out of the same text. We can never completely plumb the depths of God's word. So we are going to spend our time today milking the truths of verse 3. And let's look again at Genesis 12, 3, specifically the first half of the verse. Allow me to read it for you once again. God says, verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you 
And the one who curses you, I will curse. First half of verse 3 ends there. Now, before I get into how we should view this verse, I want to throw out a few preliminary considerations. First of all, here's a little quiz. In that first half of verse 3, how many parties are listed there? Think about it. Anybody? Okay, three, that's a good guess. Close. There's actually four. Four parties, okay? How do I know? Well, first of all, there's the I. God, right? God is the one. He says, I will bless, right? So God's in that passage, right? Next, who does he say he will bless? Those who bless you. That's the second group, okay? And then he says, uh, and obviously the third party is you, Abraham and his descendants, the objects, the recipients of the blessing. And then there's a fourth party, fourth group of people in this passage, and that's the one who curses you, right? So there are four characters in this passage. There are the blessers, there are the cursers, right? And, and, and there's God, and there's Abraham and his descendants, right? So God and Israel are established. We know who they are. We know who these Jewish people are. We know who God is. You'll notice that those who bless Israel are sort of anonymous. We don't have any names, right? But God certainly knows who they are, right? And we certainly know who they are, right? And then there's those, the one who curses. Again, it's anonymous. There's no name given. We don't know who they are. But God, trust me, God knows where they live, right? Okay. Okay, so... To sum up, there are four different parties or persons named in this verse. There's God, there's Abraham and the nation descended from him, there are those who bless Israel, and there's, there's the one who curses Israel. Okay. Everybody in agreement? Okay. So God and Israel are givens, they're precise, their identities are established, they're certain, they're beyond question. Are the two parties that anyone else and everyone else could possibly fit into would be either the blessers or the cursors. Though, theoretically, I guess somebody might say that you could be neutral. You neither bless nor curse, right? But remember the words of the philosopher Edmund Burke. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do what? Nothing. So being neutral is not, being neutral is to be a party to the triumph of evil. There was a man by the name of Martin Niemöller who was a prominent Lutheran pastor in Germany in World War II. And he emerged as an outspoken public foe of Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. And he spent the last seven years of Nazi rule in concentration camps. And he is per perhaps best remembered for his post-war words. He said this, and I quote, talking about the Nazis. He said, first, they, ca they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak 
for me. Neutrality is not an option. A couple of other important observations about Genesis 12.3 would be in order. And, and you'll forgive me, I'm going to take a little drop, a little bit of water. Sorry for my voice this morning. Okay, a couple of other important observations about Genesis 12.3. Firstly, the two parties, the blessers and the cursers, what identifies them? What characterizes them? What distinguishes them? Well, it's their relationship with and their interaction, their relationship to and their interaction with Jewish people. That is what, in fact, determines whether they reap God's blessings or his curse. In fact, this places a very significant role or prominent role on the Jewish people in God's redemptive plan and program for the world. Second, what major, note, what major difference, by the way, did you notice, if, if in fact you noticed any, between the blessers and the cursers? Okay? And I will give you a hint. It's a significant grammatical difference. Anybody notice a difference? Exactly. Excellent. Singular versus plural. Okay. Did you notice those that bless you is plural? Right? Those is a plural. Right? But the one who curses you is singular. Now, why is that? And, I, and in the Hebrew, by the way, the difference is, is, is startling. It's, it stands out in the Hebrew, the plural versus the uh, singular. I believe there's a reason for that. No word of Scripture is accidental. The very words of Scripture are inspired. So what is the significance behind the fact that the blessers are plural while the cursor is one? Well, let me first say that it cannot be taken to mean that the people who bless the Jewish nation would far outnumber those who curse her. I wish that were true. But there have been many more that have cursed the Jewish people in history than the singular individual in our verse. There have been many more than just one, I'm afraid. So the one cannot be literal, right? Here's what I think the contrast between the plural and the singular conveys. I believe it conveys and communicates the very heart of God in this manner. It is God's express purpose and desire that the vast majority of people will take to heart and heed this deterrent. God would much rather bless those who bless his people than curse those who curse his people. The blessing of the entire world rides on it. The blessing of all the families of the earth rides on it, rides on their relationship to Abraham and his offspring. God is not desirous that any should perish. And so I believe that this verse is meant to head off and serve as a deterrent against people and nations from cursing God's people, Israel. Now, let me transition uh, to how we should view this verse. We've already mentioned that optimistically it is, or at least should, serve or act as a deterrent against anti-Semitism. But what other significance does this verse have? Some have referred 
to what we have here in this verse, in this text, as a statement of God's foreign policy concerning the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And I actually believe that is exactly what we have here. In the world, politically, have you noticed that nations often align themselves with other nations? To use an example from the Cold War, immediately following the days of the Second World War, the United States founded an organization called NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And it was comprised of most of the nations of Western Europe and the United States. And the organization of NATO nations pacted and covenanted together that should the Soviet Union, Russia, and the nations aligned with it in the Warsaw Pact suddenly attack them or violate their sovereignty, that the other nations in NATO would come to their aid, right? In fact, the, in a sense, the United States bound itself to come to the aid of any nation in NATO if ever they were to come under attack by the Soviet Union. What that basically said to the Soviet Union was, if you attack them, you'll be at war with us. That became a cornerstone of US foreign policy after the Second World War. The US actually committed to being the, a big brother, to being a big brother of the free and democratic nations of Western Europe that were part of the NATO alliance. Look again here at what Gen God says in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. That is essentially God's foreign policy concerning Abraham's nation, the Jewish people. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, lest you don't believe that God has lived by those words and by this principle and promise in history, I would like you to consider a few examples with me. I, would, I first would like us to consider some examples of individuals in Scripture who were blessed because of their favorable relationship with the Jewish people or because they blessed Jewish people themselves. The first person that I would like to call as a witness is a man by the name of Potiphar. And Potiphar, by the way, comes into the scripture in, in Genesis 39. You'll remember that Joseph's brethren, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. Remember, he was the father's favorite, okay? But they sold him into slavery, and he was literally, literally rescued out of the pit, and he, he came under the wings of one of the most powerful men in Egypt, who was captain of the palace guard. His name was Potiphar. And Potiphar placed Joseph in charge of his whole estate. Potiphar blessed this young Jewish lad, Joseph. Well, let me read to you what Genesis chapter 39, verses 4 and 5 says. It says this. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight, and he became his personal servant. And Potiphar made Joseph overseer over his house. And all that he owned, he put under Joseph's charge. It came about from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned. It says the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Right? 
So from that very moment that he blessed this young Jewish lad, God's blessing came to him. And it tells us specifically on account of Joseph, right? Another example is the Egyptian midwives. Now, you know, allow me to read a section for you. Remember that Pharaoh wanted to curtail the Jewish population growth because he feared the nation of Israel who was living in its borders would align themselves against other nations who would come up to war against Egypt. So he plotted this whole plan to curtail Jewish population growth. And what he did was he issued this edict that the Jewish male babies, the males, would be cast into the Nile and drowned, right? And so come to the rescue, these Egyptian midwives. Let me read to you Exodus chapter 1 and verses 15 to 21. Now the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shepra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then he shall live. But the midwives feared God, and he did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. God blessed the Egyptian midwives. By the way, I think it's an unfortunate translation I read from the New American Standard. It said Hebrew. Uh, it said Hebrew midwives. But it's a Hebrew genitive construction. And it actually believes the midwives of the Hebrew women. So I, I do believe that they were Egyptian, and God blessed them for preserving those Jewish male children. So scripturally, we see that God blessed those individuals who blessed the Jewish people, who were favorably related to them, but the converse was also true. I want us to consider a couple of negative examples of those or those who cursed the Jewish people and Abraham's nation. Let's look no further than Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And you'll remember that he imposed taskmasters over them and imposed a program of, of slavery over them. In fact, Exodus tells us that he embittered the lives of the Jewish people, of the people of Israel, uh, with, with heavy mortar and labor. What happens at the end of the story? It's the Egyptians' lives that are made bitter when God pours out the plagues of judgment upon, and upon, their, upon them and upon their gods. Next, as I just mentioned, one of Pharaoh's ploys, one of his schemes, was that every Jewish male child would be drowned in the Nile. What happens at the end of the story? It's the entire Egyptian male army that's drowned in the Reed Sea, right? Sea of Reeds, Red Sea, okay? Uh, so the entire Egyptian male army is drowned. Somebody, God actually reversed the curse. You see that? One scholar has actually noted a principle for the way that God operates here, and he calls it curse for curse in kind. And we actually see uh, an iteration of that, an, an, uh, an expression of that in Exodus chapter 4 and verses 22 
and 23, which I'll read to you. Moses is, uh, God is talking to Moses here, and he's telling him to go and appear before Pharaoh. And he tells him what to say to Pharaoh when he gets there. And he says this to Moses. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But you, Pharaoh, have refused to let him go. Behold, in consequence, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So you see what's going on here? Pharaoh would not allow God to have Israel, his firstborn son. Consequently, God was going to take away Egypt's firstborn. God reversed the curse. Curse for curse in kind. You, you remember the story of Queen Esther that's told at the Jewish holiday of Purim. The book of Esther is read, and you'll remember that this wicked dictator, uh, his, his name was Haman. And I'm glad I'm not saying this to my congregation this morning because they boo whenever his name is recited. <laughs> um, so, and, and so, and, and you'll remember at first his plan looks like it's going to succeed. And he has this gallows built for Mordecai, the Jewish person, right? And then all of a sudden, his whole plot starts to unravel because the king couldn't sleep one night, right? And so Haman comes home and he tells his wife and his advisors what happened that day. Let me read that to verse to you. Esther 6.13. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, if Mordecai, this Jewish man, this man, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun, begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Zeresh, you have to give her credit, she knew her theology of the Hebrew Bible, didn't she, right? And so God is making good on his promise in Genesis 12, 3. I hate to say it, but he does bless those who bless his people, and the converse is also true. Now, maybe you're here today and you're saying to yourself, you know, Irving, that's all good and fine. That was way back then. You know, that was in, in scriptural history. But does God still operate in the very same way today? Now, how do we know he does that? Well, he actually does, believe it or not. And I, again, want you to think back to Nazi Germany. And many of you might remember that Jewish people were a hunted people by the Nazis and their collaborators, right? Uh, the Nazis killed over six million Jews. Many of those Jewish people had to live in hiding. My own father was a Holocaust survivor <clears throat> in Poland who had to hide in the fields and forests of Poland. And 200 people in my father's family were killed by the Nazis for no other reason than that they were Jewish. In fact, he, he, he saw his own sister shot to death in front of him. So Jewish people certainly knew what it was like to be a, a hunted people living in fear and dread of their lives. And if you think about it, what happened after the war? It was the Nazi war criminals that went into hiding, and they were being hunted by those who would bring them to justice. Not only that, but one of the strategies that the Nazis used 
whenever they would conquer a, a nation in Europe. And they would go into the major cities and they had this program to collect the Jewish people and send them off for deportation to the death camps, right? And um, so they would get into these cities in Europe and right away they would find where the Jewish community lived and then they would build a walled ghetto around it. So for example, the capital city in Poland was a city by the name of Warsaw and there was the Warsaw Ghetto uh, in Poland, right? So this was their way of collecting or concentrating the Jewish people in certain local areas so they, that they could easier deport them to the death camps. Well, isn't it interesting that after the war, Berlin itself became a walled city, perhaps curse for curse in kind. You know, Corrie ten Boom, the, the, uh, the, the woman who's featured in the book The Hiding Place and the film by the same name, perhaps you've seen it, but I'll never forget a scene in the film where he said, I pity the Nazis because they have touched the apple of God's eye. So historically, whether in scriptures or in post-scriptural history, God has blessed and does bless those who bless his people. And the converse, unfortunately, is also true. Right? Genesis 12.3 really is God's foreign policy concerning the nation of Israel. And I believe it will continue to be God's foreign policy in the future. Okay? In fact, we see it prophetically in Scripture continuing. Now, I'm not going to have us turn there, and it, it's our time will not allow us to do a detailed exegesis of the passage, but Jesus refers to it in Matthew chapter 25, and he talks about his return. And there is a prophetic, prophetic event there called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Right? And he's actually going to separate the nations. Some are sheep, they go to the right, and some are the goats, they go to the left. The, 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 the sheep get to inherit the kingdom of God. The, 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 the goats go to eternal torment and punishment. And there's a distinguishing characteristic that distinguishes the goats from the sheep. The sheep are those who helped the least of Jesus' brethren. The goats are those that didn't. Now, my, according to my theology, and I'm not going to try to prove that to you this morning, but I believe that when Jesus says they're my brethren, the least of these, I believe he's talking about his Jewish brethren. And the Jewish people we know will be hunted during the time that the Antichrist is on earth. It will be his purpose to destroy them. Uh, and again, as I mentioned earlier, Jeremiah has already called that time on earth the time of Jacob's trouble. So they will be especially persecuted and people will rise up either to help or to or, or to collaborate with the Antichrist, right? And so I believe that the, those will be blessed that, that go to the right, the sheep, and those will be cursed, those that go to the left, the goats. By the way, interesting point, the largest Nazi concentration camp and death camp in Europe was in a city named Oświęcim in Poland. It's the death camp called Auschwitz. Some of you have heard of that place. About 1.2 million people were murdered there, most of them Jewish. I've actually been to that camp four separate times in my life. Um, and, you know, there was a, a doctor there. He was the doc doctor at uh, Auschwitz. He was 
He performed all kinds of horrific experiments on Jewish people in violation of his Hippocratic oath, right? He did all kinds of experiments on twins and others, and he would actually stand on the platform where the trains arrived into Auschwitz. And as the Jewish people would unload the trains, he would point to the right and he would point to the left as, as each new visitor, as each new Jewish person came before him. The ones that went to the right were those that went to work, where they lived. They lived to live another day, if you will. But those who went to the left went immediately to their deaths in the, in the, in the, in the gas ovens, in the crematoria, right? Uh, and, so, and so it's interesting what we see actually a reversal of that. When Jesus comes again, those who help the Jewish people will go to the right. Those who curse them, who don't help them, will go to the left. You know, God promised to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? Jesus said, salvation is of who? The Jews, right? I want to read uh, one other passage here, and this one I'll ask if you would turn with me to it, if you can. Romans chapter 11 and verses 11 to 15. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 15. And Paul is talking here about the unbelief of the Jewish nation in his day. By and large, they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah in that first century. And so he's explaining that to a predominantly Gentile audience in Rome. And he says this, Romans 11, 11 to 15. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? By the way, there's a difference between stumbling and falling, right? He's, when he talks about stumbling, it's, a, it's a, a, a temporary stumble. You, you get back up and pick yourself up. A fall is permanent. And so some translations actually translate here, they did not fall so as to be beyond recovery, did they? He says, may it never be. But by their transgression, by their disobedience, by their rejection of Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And so it was used very purposefully in the plan of God. God was now opening up the way for Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus. He was not just the Jewish Messiah. He was the Savior of all those peoples, right? But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to what? To make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression, if Israel's transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will, will their fulfillment be? Imagine when Israel as a nation comes to accept Jesus and receive him as the promised Messiah. And then he says, verse 13, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch that as, I'm an, as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? When Israel comes to know Jesus as the Messiah, as a nation, it will be resurrection and regeneration to the whole world. You know, if you think about that, anti-Semitism makes absolutely no sense. Right? But I say that there is hope for anti-Semites because they're not beyond recovery. 
They're not irredeemable. You know, a, a number of years ago, we had a man speak at my congregation, my Beth Messiah in Livingston, New Jersey. We are a Messianic congregation. His name was Taysir Abusada, and he had been a terrorist under Yasser Arafat in the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. In fact, he wrote a book, Once Arafat's Man. He did some terrible things. I know that he killed Israelis. He won't even speak of most of the things he did. But he left the Middle East, came to the United States, started working as a, in a restaurant, and one of his clients was a born-again Christian. And that man came re regularly and regularly witnessed to Tass, Taysir Abusada. And Tass became a believer in Jesus the Messiah. Today, he loves Israel and the Jewish people. And in his ministry, it's called Hope for Ishmael. He's trying to reach Arabs, but he is, his goal is also to reach Israeli Jews for the cause of Messiah. Anti-Semites are not beyond recovery. Also, a number of years ago, there was a, an amazing video that I saw on YouTube. And it was about the children, descendants of Nazi war criminals, some of the top brass in the Third Reich, the Nazi party. And they were actually recorded on YouTube in a video singing Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem, out of their love for the Jewish people. They were repudiating the things that their parents and ancestors did. I believe that Genesis 12.3 is a, a deterrent. I believe it's a warning. And I believe it's a warning to Jew haters around the world to come to their senses and cease and desist from it for their own good. Scripture actually says that if you come against the Jewish people, you touch the apple of God's eye, Zechariah 2, verse 8. But you don't have to stay on the path of hate. Recognize God's plan of redemption. It involved the Jewish people, and may I say, it still involves the Jewish people. God choose to bless them, and God will bless you. But persist in hate, and God will curse you. Reject and curse the people from whom salvation comes, and you reject and curse the God of salvation. Is there any wonder that they will be subject to the curse? Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you, Father, that you are a God who never changes. You are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And, and Lord, I think it's no accident that Romans 9, 10, and 11 comes right after Romans 8, at the end of which we're reminded that nothing could ever separate us as believers, as Christians, from the love of God in Messiah. And then Paul talks about Israel in Romans 9 to 11 because they are the proof. If anyone could have been disavowed as your people, it would have been Israel, for they rejected Messiah at his coming. And yet you are a God who never goes back on his promises. You are the, the calling and gifts of God are irrevocable. You do not take them back. And I thank you for your love. I thank you for your people here today. I pray that you would help us all to be standing with Israel, to be standing with the Jewish people, be witnessing, sharing the gospel with Jewish people. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.